they cover just 3% of the Earth's land surface. But they're responsible for more than 70% of all carbon emissions. I'm talking about cities, where currently over half of the world's population live. And, according to the UN, that could be almost three quarters by 2050. So when it comes to carbon emissions, how can cities become low carbon? We've seen that 80%, actually almost 90% of urban emissions can be eliminated by 2050 using technically feasible and widely available measures. Who's getting it right? We see sustainability as a chance, as an opportunity for the future, for uh, making our city more uh, livable, more nice to live in. The goal is the same, but is there a one-size-fits-all answer? There's no silver bullet, it's a silver bucket these days. So it's combinations of measures rather than one individual single measure. Today on the Energy Podcast, carbon neutral cities, dream or reality? Today we've come to India, well, through the power of Zoom, of course, because we thought the best way to find out if cities can become carbon neutral and what's needed to make that happen was to visit one facing some big challenges, Delhi. 30 million people live here. And according to Greenpeace in Southeast Asia, Delhi has the highest estimated early death rate from air pollution in the world. So I am here to basically spend quality time with the plants and nurture them, water them. That's Puneet Verma, one man on a green mission. He's so worried about the air quality in his home city that he created Mission Green Delhi. So this was really a problem, health issues in people related to lungs and other organs. A platform that connects people in the city enabling them to share ideas around sustainability and collaborate on green projects. His own balcony is packed with over 100 plants that he grows to share with the community. And he says this is a small solution everyone can adopt. few of my plants uh, are now self-sustainable trees and now I can plant them in some open spaces like schools or colleges who usually request uh, plants from Mission Green Delhi. So idea is basically to nurture more and more saplings and plants in our homes, terrace, balcony, open spaces that we have and nurture these plants so that they become self-sustainable and we can plant them in open spaces and increase the green cover in our city. So right now I can see there is a, a mango sapling that is like half of my height I can see a sweet lemon that is also like half of my height. I started Mission Green Delhi because I was frustrated about the pollution on Delhi roads. So this was really a problem and this was leading to a more number of health issues in people related to lungs and other organs. So we wanted to have a solution, a central plat platform and what I hope to achieve with this platform is to bring people together so that they can collaborate with each other and form decentralized 
small citizen groups do plantation drives to perform terrace gardening kitchen gardening segregating uh, the waste at their homes to make a city cleaner as well so i would like to invite everybody to be part of this platform and help each other who have similar interest and dream to make delhi green Pinit Verma there who's encouraging others to do their bit in making the city of Delhi cleaner and greener. And that idea of local action is supported by the UN because green cover in cities improves not only air quality but also lessens the impact of extreme weather related events such as the wildfires seen in the US and Canada this year. These events and the use of nature to help decarbonise cities and the role buildings have to play were at the heart of the discussion when local government leaders and industry experts came together to look at the challenges cities face in decarbonising. We'll be hearing how buildings specifically can be made to be more sustainable a bit later on. But first, let's hear the World Cities Summit recorded earlier this year. The host for the discussion was Shell's General Manager for City Solutions, Emily Tan. With me is Lauren Sorkin, Executive Director of the Resilient Cities Network. And with us virtually is Aziza Akmush, Head of the Cities, Urban Policies and Sustainable Development Division at OECD. And Fred Ackerbaum, Manager Sustainability, City of Rotterdam. I'd like to first start the topic with Aziza. Aziza, thank you for dialing in from Paris on behalf of the OECD. What, in your view, is the role of cities? Cities are actually essential, as you rightly said, for that transition to a low-carbon economy. We know that buildings account for almost a third of energy-related greenhouse gas emissions globally. And we also know that that share can actually reach 70% in cities like London, Tokyo and New York. And in a recent report we've produced with the Coalition of Urban Transitions, we've seen that 80%, actually almost 90% of urban emissions can be eliminated by 2050 using technically feasible and widely available measures. And these significant emissions reductions comes primarily from the building sector almost 60% of it. And that means, therefore, that decarbonizing our buildings is likely to generate multiple benefits, including in terms of jobs, health benefits, and increased energy affordability. So it's not just an environmental case for it. It's actually an economic and social case. And this is probably the reason why in many recovery packages, whether it's at the EU level or in countries like Spain, France, and many others in the OECD countries, national governments' recovery packages have actually devoted a big attention to that issue of decarbonization in buildings. We've seen, for example, how cities like New York have introduced a very ambitious Climate Mobilization Act that is actually capping the carbon emissions from large existing buildings. Fred, thank you for joining us today to showcase what the city of Rotterdam is doing in energy transition. What is the role of the city in decarbonization? Well, first of all, we try to be a fossil-free city. And so we have complied to the 49% of CO2 emission reduction by 2030 and be a climate neutral city in 2050. So, well, how do we get fossil free? Of course, like Aziza told, 
especially the existing houses, making them more insulated. That's one. And second, using a fossil free uh, district heating system and using and promoting geothermal uh, heat and cooling and also from our waters, etc. But as Aziza told, it's an enormous task, not only for government itself, but also for the people living there. As I really mentioned, we have new sources for cooling and heating. Uh, and for instance, the new hydrogen plant in our harbor could afford a lot of sustainable heat for our city. Uh, but there's more. We have some 19 kilometers, square kilometers of, uh, of flat roofs. We use them to put solar PV on them and also greening the roofs, of course, because we like to cool the city as much as possible. And of course, we invest in wind power, in solar, etc. And our target is that all our inhabitants can have a share in the revenues of all those new and sustainable energy forms. We see sustainability as a chance, as an opportunity for the future, for uh, making our city more livable, but also to achieve a lot of work for our city, more nice to live in. We have seen how the global pandemic, coupled with extreme climate events in the last few months globally, has strengthened the need for resilience to be built up in cities. So now I'd like to move to expert in this area, to Lauren. So the Resilient Cities Network helps cities to build resilience all over the world. The recent example of Houston also highlights the need for energy resilience. How do you see decarbonisation fitting in? two-thirds of the emissions are coming from cities. And decarbonizing our cities, the way they're built and powered, is essentially going to enable us to build resilience. So Houston is an example of a city that is very much on the front lines of energy transition as the energy capital of the United States, where I'm from, but also in responding with urban resilience. So as we saw, and as I think most folks know, Houston is no stranger to climate impacts. First with Hurricane Harvey, they, they say that the storm was estimated to be about four times stronger than it could have been because of climate change, because of how much warmer the waters are uh, and how much stronger that storm was. And so that combined with what we saw this past January with the winter storm, Yuri, was, was really quite tragic because the city systems broke down and the failure of the energy grid there in Houston meant that people couldn't heat their homes. And in some cases, very sad cases, people actually couldn't survive. And so, you know, the lesson that Mayor Sylvester Turner, who is, is the chairman of our board of directors and the leadership team and our chief resilience officer of Houston really took from that was that, you know, there is this really important opportunity to redouble efforts to strengthen those energy systems and to achieve those multiple benefits through urban resilience. Um, and in, in the few years that have followed Hurricane Harvey, a lot of this kind of work was already underway in terms of the energy transition. And now it is being strengthened through a couple of different means. So Houston has a carbon reduction strategy, which they have um, a report called the Low Energy Capital. And that looks at a few different pathways for energy transition for Houston, advancing carbon capture and storage, building a low carbon energy grid, developing Houston as a hydrogen hub. And, and I know uh, Fred was already talking about hydrogen in the port in Rotterdam and also creating a circular plastics economy. We are a water city from, well, I think the 70th century or whatever, but we can still learn a lot also from Houston and other cities. So 
the work together with companies is of course very important because the role of government has been changed uh, the, the last decades, of course. Uh, people won't listen only to the government, they, they won't. We, we know what, what people want, but they only accept the advice from their neighbor or whatever, or their, their neighborhood, etc. But also the companies like Shell are very important because we, as government, we can only uh, make the demand of, of our people, of our industries, etc. But uh, the supply has to come from uh, the companies themselves. So uh, we, we can make a strategy of uh, hydrogen like you do, you, like you did in Houston, but companies like Shell, etc., have to invest in hydrogen itself. So it's very important to have those. Uh, it sounds also easy just to have another kind of, uh, of heat source as a, as, a, as a housing or whatever, but it could be very stressful also because we have to get into their houses to make new pipes in their houses, to have a new bill, etc., and it, it needs a lot of trust and a lot of information and a lot of money. Thank you, Fred. I absolutely agree that the role of the community and companies is indispensable in making things work, and certainly the role of the government in helping to promote low-carbon fuels like hydrogen and that, therefore creating the demand is crucial. And corporate citizens like Shell have to play our part in investing into renewables generation. I think just uh, this month, we've announced the investment in the northern part of the Netherlands, in Groningen, in a hydrogen refilling station for buses, which we will supply with green hydrogen. So that's an example of how the city can work with the private sector like Shell to really make system level changes and enable this decarbonisation. So I'd like to expand further on the role of the private sector and the community. Aziza, what are your thoughts on their roles? I think what Fred said about the trust relationship between citizens and their governments is absolutely true. Actually, we've seen since the global financial crisis that uh, in the OECD region, a good 70% of citizens uh, have limited trust in the capacity of their national government to ensure their well-being. But what we see, and that is equally interesting, is that it's the other way around when you go local. You have actually a much higher share of of local residents that trust the capacity of their local governments and in particular the city leadership, the mayor, to ensure uh, their well-being, way more than at the national level. So I guess I'm representing the private sector in the room, so I must say that at Shell we are committed to play our role. So Shell is investing into renewable generation, hydrogen, electric vehicle charging networks and many more low-carbon energy solutions. So we absolutely want to play our role in advancing sustainable solutions for cities. From the panel discussion, it's clear that we have a long journey ahead of us and there's so much at stake. And collaboration and partnership between the various city stakeholders, the government, the private sector and the community will be very, very important for us to create sustainable cities of the future. I would like to give my heartfelt thanks to the panellists for taking time to join us today. I think we're all on the same mission and it's great to have such a wonderful dialogue. We are most pleased to announce a strategic collaboration between the Resilient Cities Network and Shell City Solutions. As cities grow, the importance to develop resilience while navigating the energy transition becomes increasingly important. That was the World Cities Summit panel discussion around resilient cities. What you may have heard was a focus on buildings, because it's not just transport that impacts emission levels in a city. We've spoken about that before here on the Energy Podcast, and you can check out those other episodes on our channel. 
Direct and indirect emissions from electricity and commercial heat used in buildings reached the highest level ever recorded in 2019, according to analysis by the International Energy Agency. What's been done about that rise when it comes to new and existing buildings? Larry Bryden is the chairman of the board for Sustainable Buildings Canada, a not-for-profit organisation focusing on advancing the environmental performance of buildings. I began by asking him why buildings are such big emitters. There's two different types of emissions. We have operational emissions, those that are emitted uh, as a result of the building being operated, But there's far more substantial emissions in the construction of the building through the materials. So these are what we call embedded carbon. And this is the carbon that was released over the life cycle of the production of the building. And then emissions are tied directly to your energy source. So if your energy source is natural gas, you have higher emissions. If you have electricity, You may have um, lower emissions, but you might have higher emissions. It depends on how your electricity is being generated. So as an example, if your electricity is being generated by coal, then uh, it doesn't matter what, what you really do with the building. You're still going to have high emissions as a result of that. So the most important thing to focus on really in the building is the energy efficiency of the building and to drive down those energy use loads as much as possible. And that's really what the integrated design process focuses on. So what would a really good example of a sustainable building or an efficient building look like? What kind of features might it have? I guess some examples of exemplary buildings here in in Ontario would be ones like um, the Evolve One. They might be um, uh, the Humber College retrofit. The uh, Canada Green Building Council has a initiative called the Zero Carbon Initiative that um, rates a building based on its carbon emissions. It's a case of, um, of you reducing your loads. So you're either reducing heating loads or you're reducing cooling loads by, uh, by improving the building envelope. Or you're increasing the ventilation loads, the um, fresh air that comes into the, uh, into the building itself. The next thing you would be looking for in a sustainable building would be lots of good natural lighting. So high quality natural lighting from the outdoors wherever possible. And then finally, you'd be looking at a very efficient mechanical system to provide the heating, the cooling, and the ventilation. Perhaps you might see a little bit of renewable energy. I know the um, the UK led the pack in policy regarding mandatory um, renewable energy. How easy or difficult is it to retrofit or to improve the levels of these buildings once they've already been built. What we're seeing more and more of within the retrofit space is a practice called deep energy retrofitting. So deep energy retrofitting sort of aims to bring the overall energy performance of a um, existing building down by about 50%, five zero. So so reducing that uh, energy requirement by about half. 
And uh, our experience, one of the things that um, Sustainable Buildings Canada does is um, we run a program for the gas utility for developers looking at reducing their total net energy. So uh, based on that program, and we've gone through four or five hundred of these particular projects, within the category of retrofitted buildings, we've found that uh, 25% is a uh, achievable target with 50% being a achievable but stretch target. And uh, really there is no sort of one single uh, technology. One of my um, associates coined the phrase that there's no silver bullet, it's a silver bucket these days. So it's combinations of measures rather than one individual single measure. Larry Bryden, thank you so much for talking to us today. All right. Well, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity. So, can a city ever become carbon neutral? Or is the world just dreaming? If a city manager acts alone, then, as our experts have said, it's going to be an uphill struggle. The picture is too complex. So, it will take partnerships with business and national governments to drive change more widely. But individual actions can cause positive change. As cities grow, that collective effort will become ever more important. You've been listening to the Energy Podcast brought to you by Shell. You can find the Energy Podcast on all major podcast providers. Follow or subscribe for free so that you don't miss an episode. The Energy Podcast was produced by Fresh Air Production. And I must remind you that the views you've heard today are those of the people featured and not Shell or its affiliates. I'm Bryony McKenzie. Thank you for listening and goodbye.